It's the most marvelous time of the year. The Marvels has released, and we have our review. Buckle up, because the byword starts now. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Nerd by Word. We are here at episode 172, and uh, we are reviewing the Marvels, characters that are very near and dear to our hearts, and how did it hold up in the movie? Uh, we'll find out with our Byword Big Talk, but first, it's time for some very pressing... Dave, uh, same old, same old, I guess. Yeah, it's time to queue up that uh, incredibly memorable Queen baseline because another Warner Brothers movie bites the dust. Uh, <laughs> it's almost comical at this point if it wasn't so very, very depressing. Uh, so uh, the uh, studio has actually produced um, a uh, $30 million live-action animation hybrid based on the Looney Tunes characters called Coyote vs. Acme, starring, among many others, uh, former wrestler John Cena. Uh, the filming for the movie was completed in 2022, and it was uh, originally produced as a HBO Max exclusive. And, of course, uh, as you can imagine, given the history of Warner Brothers, this movie, too, now will never see the light of day as it is being shelved, locked in the vault, uh, in order to receive a tax write-off. Joining movies Batgirl and uh, Scooby-Doo's Scoop Holiday Haunt as tax write-offs. Admittedly, the movie was greenlit uh, under the previous regime, uh, just like the other two movies that have been previously tax (laughs) write-offed. But... uh, (sighs) This one has an additional wrinkle in that James Gunn was actually involved in the production of this movie, including being one of the producers and helping break the story. Um, so in short, uh, that that seems like a very interesting choice given the um, important role that Gunn now plays at uh, at Warner. Um, but I guess the, uh, the, the nickel and dime counters decided that uh, it's going to be but there's more money there by getting the tax write-off than actually releasing it, which I find difficult to believe. Um, even if you decide that you are not going to, you know, make this some kind of HBO Max thing to drive people to subscribe to the now renamed Max service, um, there was definitely a possibility of trying to release this thing direct to video and making a whole bunch of money this way. Uh, the Looney Tunes are obviously still a pretty recognizable brand. Um, and I find it difficult to believe that there was not a better way to recoup uh, this money. Um, so a Warner Brothers uh, spokesperson said uh, in a statement, with the relaunch of Warner Brothers Pictures Animation in June, the studio has shifted its global strategy to focus on theatrical releases. With this new direction, we have made a difficult decision not to move forward with Coyote versus Acme. We have tremendous respect for the filmmakers, cast, and crew, and are grateful for their contributions to the film. Which is, of course, absolute baloney, considering how heartbroken everybody is, and many people who were involved with the film have already taken to Twitter uh, and Instagram and various other 
platforms to complain uh, in great detail about this move, including director Dave Green, uh, who had previously directed a TMNT project. So uh, that is obviously a, a pedigree that you'll appreciate, Chris. And he said in his statement for three years, I was lucky enough to make a movie about Wile E. Coyote, the most persistent, passionate and resilient character of all time. I was surrounded by a brilliant team who poured their souls into this project for years. We were all determined to honor the legacies of these historic characters and actually get them right. Along the ride, we were embraced by test audience who rewarded us with fantastic scores. I'm beyond proud of the final product and beyond devastated by WB's decision. But in the spirit of Wally Coyote, resilience and persistence win the day. Um, I've also seen posts from people involved in uh, scoring the movie and, and releasing even snippets of the actual score for people to hear. Um, the reaction to this online has been pretty similar to what we've seen with something like Batgirl, probably even a little more pronounced in the negative um, because this movie was based on reports finished, ready. There was no more editing or anything required. And uh, the thing that is so baffling is what uh, Green specifically mentioned in his statement, which is uh, that it tested extremely well with audiences. You know, there were some reports about Batgirl in particular not testing very well, and they might have to rework some stuff and that additional money might be necessary. So it's maybe perhaps just a little bit easier to make an argument for that movie to get shelved rather than investing additional money into it. Uh, but this one was basically finished. And on top of that, audiences that did see it were extremely positive about the movie. Um, as a big Looney Tunes fan, lifelong, uh, this is pretty disappointing. Uh, I'm a big, I'm a big Wally Coyote fan, anyways, um, and so I would have loved to see this. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm starting to wonder how much uh, more often Warner, under this new regime, is going to be so incredibly anti-art as to basically lock away or destroy entire movies just you know for a tax write-off. It's 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 incredibly disappointing, Chris. Yeah, I I made a, a point like I, I was sitting there is like if if you're like a big name person um and and John Cena like all there's so many spinning plates that we could go on this episode um we're reviewing the Marvels which is not performing well at the box office domestically as you pointed out um and is that it is that a signifier of quality film of course not John Cena, on the other hand, being involved in this project is a fascinating person because that ties into my news story, the end of the, the, the strike. He, while the strike was ongoing, he made a return to the WWE and like, in my opinion, which I am watching regularly, in my opinion, it was kind of lackluster. However, he did bump up like several kind of up and comers and kind of give them the John Cena rub as the self-proclaimed GOAT, the greatest of all time. Many WWE fans see him as one of the upper echelon superstars of the modern era. Um, and for him, and he's done well, like in my nerd commendation, he's in my nerd commendation as well today. Um, and he performs well there. And so like, he's a big name star. And for, if you're a big name star with that kind of clout, why are you signing up for WB projects? Maybe you're content with taking the, the paycheck and, and moving on. Like I, I would assume he's still getting some kind of compensation for this. And if that's how you feel, then God bless and go on. 
but if and and I and I know if you're a small timer, if you're a background person, if you're an up and comer, you don't necessarily have that luxury. But like, how is this salvageable? Like, to how can how can WB possibly save face at this point? Now, granted, Max has great content on that app. Like, it is it is heavily in my rotation of streamers, but. I'm I'm just at a loss for what the what the the strategy is here moving forward, like and it, as as hopeful as I want to be for an invigorated DCU, I I don't know I don't know man at this point. Yeah, as far as like from the actor's perspective, if you actually want people to see your work, Warner doesn't seem to be the place to go these days, right? Um, but even, you know, as, as, as any creative individual, like, you know, as a director, for example, you know, like if, if, if this new regime is so quick to just shelf something, um, you know, for a tax write-off, like, like how many more tax write-offs can Warner get at this point? It's, it seems almost ludicrous, right? Someone, someone retweeted something that was from January of this year. So um, 10 months ago. 10 months ago and said, oh, the tax write-off, that era for WB, Zaslav said, was over. Well, apparently not. And how do you feel if you're James Gunn and you have signed on to be such a preeminent position for such a a well-beloved franchise like DC? You know, it's not been portrayed all that well cinematically, but there's still strong fan bases for DC Comics. And those characters. I'm right over here. Yes, I'm right over here. <laughs> and you sign on, and you are, and you are not immune to this. And the project that you have spent years on, this is how you're treated. I hope that check. I hope that check is worth it, bud. Because yeah, ain't no way. Yeah, that it's it's just a very messed up situation. All right, Chris. So you bring us some positive news, and I'm glad to hear something positive for a change. So let's do that. Well, the reason that we feel comfortable opening today's episode for a review of the Marvels is because the SAG actor strike uh, is over. Strike is over. Uh, now there is still voting to be done uh, as of the time of recording in the coming we- in the coming weeks uh, for SAG after members to vote on this. But eighty six percent of the negotiation board agreed to this. Um, trying to cover some of the details that are important here. Um, we have wage increases, um, a 7% basic minimum increase, um, 4% in July 2024, 3.5% in July 2025. Um, there's also wage increases for streaming revenue. Now, how much, how often that's going to be enacted um, remains to be seen. Uh, there are protections uh, for artificial intelligence, um, wage increases for background actors, which is really cool. Um, I think my favorite detail, which was really neat, is hair and makeup representation um, for different skin tones, different hair textures. Um, and one that should have just been like, duh, intimacy co- coordinators on all sets when you're when you're filming scenes like that. Um that that's can be a sticky situation. So um, all signs point to, you know, a successful negotiation. And this just shows, in my opinion, the power when 
um, you have strong unions and you don't take bull crap from um, the man, as it were. So so good on you. And uh, we will always champion workers rights on this show. Testify. Uh, yeah, this is really exciting. Um, not the least of which I will freely admit it, it's nice to be able to actually talk about some movie and television projects again, like we are going to today. Not that it's not been a fun era to focus more on comic books and, and video games, but uh, you and I are very much a sort of variety is the spice of life kind of people. <laughs> so being able to bounce a little bit more from topic to topic uh, is going to be nice again. Uh, so doing a, doing a movie review this week is is something that I've been looking forward to for a while. But you know everything that's been reported so far on the deal is exactly you know what what the uh, the actors have been after for a while. Um, and I'm really really excited that they were able to pull this off um, and just see everybody kind of you know get back to work in the entertainment industry and start producing again is just going to be you know, exciting, I guess, you know, and, and, you know, television's coming back. We're going to have abbreviated seasons for some stuff, but things are rolling again. Uh, it looks like, you know, the most important film personally for me, Superman Legacy, uh, is not even, you know, losing its release date as of right now, because apparently there's been some, some production design or something going on in the background. So they're actually able to jump into filming pretty much immediately. Um, so that's really, really exciting. It's just, it's good to see, you know, things get, get back to it, you know, as, as huge, uh, pop culture nerds, this is where our bread is buttered, you know, and, and seeing, you know, things happening again and moving and shaking again is absolutely fantastic. Absolutely. All right. That wraps up nerd news for this week. When we return from our first break, we will be reviewing the Marvels. All right, we are back for our main segment. We call it our byword. And it's been a while since we've been in this seat reviewing films or television series. But um, in case you need a refresher, we typically like to have three big likes apiece and three big dislikes. Uh, some of those dislikes can stretch into nitpicks because we overall enjoyed the project, but uh, we like to have a balanced approach when we review something. Uh, and then we'll give it an overall grade as uh, people in our day job uh, are wanting to do or uh, want to do. Um, but first, uh, Dave, far and away, I could have put this in the shared document for you, but your first like on the film. Well, uh, it's probably no surprise as a huge Miss Marvel fan that uh, Kamala Khan to me was the standout uh, of this movie. Uh, particularly, I think in the first half, uh, she she very very strongly carries her and her family and and all the real fun stuff, uh, especially when they introduce you know the the notion of switching. You know, every time they use their power simultaneously, how the three characters switch places. All the most fun stuff somehow happens either with with Kamala Khan's family or with Kamala Khan herself I particularly love the moment where she where she switches with uh, with Carol and uh you know is is on this planet and you know Carol was fighting all these guys and the darn flirk and just like swallows a person and she's just screaming at the top of her legs like oh my god what just happened it's, it's such a perfectly pitch perfectly acted moment and so so miss marvel uh you know like straight ripped from the comics I think um Oh, my favorite! My favorite is when she starts talking to the Cree, and then Carol shows up and goes, oh, K- "Kamala, don't talk to them." 
<laughs> she she I, I will say that Iman Vellani continues to be just a perfect embodiment of this character every time she's on screen. And I get such a kick out of the fact that you know Marvel still has the capability apparently to to do this absolute pitch perfect casting. I still think she's probably the best casting that Marvel has done this phase period. And that's saying something because they've had a few bangers as far as casting is concerned. But she's just at the at the top of the list for me. Uh, everything in this movie that had anything to do with her was basically flawless. And I'm I'm saying that sure from a fan's perspective of character. But it's you know there's so many a- adaptations that that play uh, you know hard and loose with with a particular character to kind of bend the character into the the, the story that they're trying to tell. But in this particular case, I feel it continues on that the MCU version of Miss Marvel, despite the tweak in powers from personality and, and you know, just behavior and, and reactions and everything is probably one of the best adaptations in the MCU. And so seeing her again, absolute joy for me in this movie. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I, I feel like she's like the heart of this project and she's the connective tissue between all three of the characters uh, all three of the main characters more on that in a moment, but, um, and then like the family element, like, I feel like even with, with what I love about Kamala's family is like, they're so inviting and they're so loving. And so like Monica, Carol, Fury, even like they're immediately part of that, that group, so to speak, like immediately, um, like there's a caring there. Um, I, I will say that Muniba Khan is the greatest character in the history of the MCU, and I will stand by that. Like, I love her to the moon and back. Like, she's the best. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a better spokesperson or kind of flagship individual for the MCU moving forward um, as they are kind of in a, a season of change. I think you'd be hard pressed to find a better person to help weather that change than Amon Vellani. Absolutely, man. All right, I'm very interested to talk about your first like here. I think it's uh, it's definitely something that we can agree on. Uh, yeah. So I I love I think my overall thing that makes me love this movie is it's unapologetic to the source material. It's unapologetically a comic book movie. And a lot of the times um, when comic book movies kind of fall short for me is where they try to play to the gen pop or the, the mass audiences or the, let's call it, let's call it what it is, the loser critics in mass media, the film critics, the, the Oscar heads, if you will. Like, so I love that it's unapologetically silly. It's a comic book movie. Um, <laughs> like the Flurkins, like the the escape strategy of the Flurkins <laughs> as your exit strategy. There's not enough skate pods. That's okay. Just let them completely just engulf, like eat you. And then they'll just regurgitate you when we get back on earth. Like that's our escape strategy. And like, that's like one of the biggest climaxes of the film is hey all you crew members on this space station allow yourself to be eaten (laughs) by these unassuming cat-like creatures 
with tentacles uh inside of the, it, it's it's just i i absolutely love it like the the musical planet like they're them making carol like a disney princess as it were like that was just uh my only criticism of it is i wanted more so we'll get to that in the dislikes but like I just love that this is, I think I said it was like a 70s or 80s Marvel team-up book, but with like a much updated like sensibility for equality and equity um, and like social awareness. So like if you can have like one of those books set in that era without like the the tropes and like the uh, the stuff that doesn't age well. Yeah, it, it reminds me a little bit of like uh, one of those 80s uh, buddy cop movies, only, you know, less cop, um, more superhero. And uh, it's three characters instead of just two. But it really liked the idea of like having these very disparate characters, you know, teaming up for the story and trying to find common ground and, and finding the humor in that. It reminds me of sort of that kind of movie making, like you said, updated for, uh, you know, a more modern time. But yeah, it, it really feels comic booky. And as a huge comic book nerd, how, you know, what more can you want from a comic book movie than actually feel like it could have been a story in an actual comic book? Um, I absolutely love this about this movie. Yeah. So your second like we have hinted at, but let's lean full force into it. Yeah. So I, I have my critiques of the movie. Um, I don't think it was flawless, but I think the thing that carried the movie through line from start to finish was the chemistry between the three leads i think whatever was going on there was lightning in the bottle um considering you know how these were characters that were you know they were not cast for chemistry you know like these were all people that were cast in individual projects and then thrown together for this movie and so the fact that they bounce off of each other so effort effortlessly and so flawlessly is so lucky for the MCU because this is the kind of chemistry that usually you constantly are doing, you know, repeated, um, you know, screen tests for, and you're trying to find the chemistry between the characters and, you know, these two work, but this one doesn't, let's get somebody else in here for that. And there's so much experimentation to try to find this kind of chemistry. And the MCU just basically stumbled into it because I don't think there was any reports that like, you know, for example, you know, when they cast uh, Iman Vellani, that they even put her on, on screen with Brie Larson or anything to see if there's chemistry there or something, you know? And and they just, really the MCU just stumbled into absolutely fireworks of chemistry between these three, uh, these three characters and these three actors. Um, and it's joyous when they're on screen together and they get to bounce off of each other. Like it's, it's, indescribable fun even when what's on the page necessarily doesn't work perfectly they sort of make it work i think my favorite moment in the movie period is when the three characters are trying to get a grip on the switching and they do like jump rope and stuff together just trying to you know time their switching right the best sequence on the film in my opinion best sequence by far yeah and i just absolutely completely 100 percent carried by the chemistry of these three women and it was just like I know there's going to be a lot said about box office and whether this movie is successful, blah, blah, blah. But as far as just these characters interacting and bouncing off of each other, like I would love to see more of this. Um, you know, if there's, you know, going to be another sequel uh, to, to Captain Marvel, this is what I want. I want these three characters in a room together again, because it's absolutely pitch perfect how they interact with each other. 
I think, does it make me sad, the domestic box office? Yes. But I think using that as a criticism of this film is a disingenuous argument. This is a feature film um, that came out. It was released the day the strike was over. But you and I both know that blockbusters like this have press tours for at least a month before its release. Like Tom Hiddleston and Brie Larson, the news broke and by the next day they were on the tonight show. Like, so I, I really like, would it be great if they surprised us and it performs incredibly well and it has this great comeback story? Sure. But I, I'm not using that to color my appreciation of this film. So I think I know we're in the likes section, but I, I, I want to like make that very, very clear. But the, for me, the chemistry is what carries this film and it makes it rewatchable. What makes it stand out. Um, and I think it's a testament to each three of the performers, to Brie Larson, to Tiana Paris, to Amon Balani, to their malleability. Um, I have not seen any other Amon Valani projects other than Ms. Marvel. Uh, I've seen bits and pieces of They Clone Tyrone with Ty- Tiana Paris. I've not seen Candyman. I've, I want to see it. And I've not seen a whole lot of other Brie Larson work, but I know her range based on clips that I've seen. So this is not like the most informed opinion in the world, but based on what I have seen, I think it's a testament to their malleability and their acting range. Um, You also have like the behind the scenes stuff that we were treated to with like the group chat with Nia DaCosta, like, Amon Vellani, while Brie Larson is going on The Tonight Show, you have Tiana Paris and Amon Vellani out at dinner for Nia DaCosta's birthday. Like, you just have, we we kind of lucked into these these women who seemingly just have a a genuine affection for one another, and, and we are reaping the benefits as the audience. And I certainly hope that they're not done with these characters bouncing off of each other. You know, like just even if they feel ultimately like this movie underperformed, it is not because of the chemistry between between the actors. I think they really locked into something there that should definitely be further explored. I think I think we are ripe for that story to be told with how the movie ended. I think. I think Monica may very well be on her own kind of journey. We'll, we'll see how that story continues. Um, but I think that that Carol and Kamala, I don't know, because maybe Kamala is, is going a young Avenger, full spoilers for a movie that you probably should have seen if you pressed play on this episode. But um, so we'll just, just get into the, the end credits and post credits and all the credits. Um, I think the young Avengers route is really interesting. Um, I'm I'm interested to see how they fill out that cast officially. We've had all the rumors as rumors as the day is long. We've had all the rumors. Um, so I'm interested to see how that goes. But I think also like that final scene at the the house in Louisiana for Carol and Kamala. I don't I don't think we should throw that away either because I think there's some beautiful potential there. Um, and then I think Monica 
of course it's freaking beast would be the first x-men character in the mcu but of course it is <laughs> uh, uh, but did you note, um, though i find that very interesting did you note though that he was actually full cgi this time I found that interesting because they were able to kind of keep Kelsey Grammer, whose voice is actually really, really good for Beast, um, without having to deal with the limitations of his age. So Beast looked good. Like, I was kind of shocked how how well that model was developed, considering that they've not done this before. It's not like with the Hulk, you know, where there's all this all this, you know, history in the back of trying to figure out how the best way to do the Hulk. And they had, you know, did all the movements and everything and scanned in the performance and everything. Like, none of that really existed and and he looked really really good like i was kind of shocked how good the cg was on him there if you know anything about the trajectory of the character of hank mccoy uh, you'll you'll fully appreciate just how perfect the casting of kelsey Grammer. if you know anything about the real life of kelsey Grammer, is yeah so <laughs> it's on point but i'm still side-eyeing it um i do love because Carol Danvers, um, veteran X-Men fans will know, like Claremont had a lot to do with Carol Danvers back in the 70s and 80s. And then, of course, also did the X-Men. So Carol Danvers featured as a very important character in X-Men for a very long time. And so seeing, I think, Binary is the moniker that they gave um, uh, Maria's character. But this kind of seeing that as like a an on ramp for the X Men was fascinating and really really cool to see. Um, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say that Rogue just needs to stay away from Carol. Let's just be clear <laughs> on that. Rogue <laughs> is not allowed to touch Carol in any way, shape, or form. Stay away. I I don't want any of that. I'm kind of fascinated to see it, uh, especially uh, you know if and when we get casting. Um, I don't know. I went off on a tangent there, but um, I'm really excited to see. I think we're still in your second light. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what the future holds, and, and hopefully we get more of these three together. That brings us to your second like, and I'm very interested in what you have to say here because I'm not a, I'm not 100% sure I agree. I think I, I think there's going to be a little bit of splitting here. I, my, I don't want to get into the dislikes. For <laughs> the runtime that we got, I will say that I think each of the three leads had a proportionate, a proportional time to shine. Um, Monica cooked with that scene, uh, the fight scene in the uh, the cons residence, like where she was going through guys. Like uh, Kitty Pride was crying and throwing up in the corner the way she was phasing through guys. Uh, <laughs> So I, I really enjoyed uh, Monica's moments there. Her being the person to make the heroic sacrifice, as it were. I know she's in another dimension now or another reality, if you will, um, universe. But kind of her being the person, like, I love that moment for her and, like, how beautiful she looked in in that moment. That was really, really cool. You had Carol being... Um, a complex character like she wasn't one note did it give her enough time to breathe not really but more on that later um and then kamala being like the central nervous system of all of these characters so do i want more runtime yes but 
for what we got, I love that they were all featured. You know, I, I think I can agree with this more than I initially thought with, with what it looked like on the page. Yeah, I think uh, they did actually a decent job bouncing from character to character. I didn't feel like there was like a main lead and then like supporting characters. It felt like there were three leads. And that is not always um, easy for, for Hollywood to pull off. But I think in this case, they really did. It really felt like three leads, co-equal characters, rather than, you know, one main lead and two afterthoughts. And and that was a good move, I think, for this movie. Yeah. Um, and, and we kind of danced around this a little bit, but your third, like, uh, I think, uh, really carried. Yeah. Um, so one of the most unique things in the movie and the thing that I think worked the best in this movie was the 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 quantum entanglement angle where they actually did this whole thing where the characters would switch places if they use their powers at the same time and in the first half of the film this led to a lot of fun you know and light humor as they switch places in you know ways that they didn't mean to and we have a lot of interesting sequences coming out of that carol at at kamala's house for example um Kamala going free fall and Monica trying to save her. Those sorts of moments, uh, the confusion of it all, uh, lend a really interesting uh, urgency to every move that they were making. Every time that they would use their powers, you weren't sure if it would go sideways. And and that was really, really good in the first half. And really then creative. we had that. I, I know how you feel about the, 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 the powers of Kamala and everything, but that did have some, some nice features for this new power set that sequence yeah I, th- I think i think all of this made it basically worth it like if this was the angle they were taking of course the entanglement is over now you know so um it would be nice if they after this movie they could still like tap into that like purposefully do a swap because what what i think made the second half of the movie work really well is when they were starting to get a hold of the switching and they started using it in battle on purpose and we started getting some very interesting action sequences i'm thinking like uh probably the best x-men scene to me in in the fox x-men movies was was nightcrawler at the beginning of x2 you incredibly know? low you bas- bar but yes incredibly yes. low bar but yes it was basic it was basically that on roids you know with three characters instead of just one like the 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 movement and and the fluidity of them swapping back and forth and using that to their advantage was a ton of fun to watch and there were plenty of times where I wished I could just like immediately sit down and watch it again, just to get more uh, more sense for those sequences because they were they were fast paced and 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 were throwing a lot of stuff at you, but they were visually super interesting. It was probably the the switching mechanic basically of the movie was sort of the backbone of what made the the action scenes visually interesting in comparison to to some other superhero flicks. I really really liked this. Um, I think they could have leaned into it even more, but what they did with it was absolutely awesome. Yeah, I love the the fight choreography on this. Like it, it harkened back to something like Shang Chi, like that was one of the strengths of that film was the fight choreography. Absolutely, and I think it was really smartly done. Um, but yeah, I, I I loved like that that one scene that we kind of got in the trailer of them just going back and forth while they're fighting the the final boss. Um, but yeah, I really, really, really enjoyed that element. All right, that brings us to your final like. And as a as a cat daddy, uh, I am not surprised that this is something that you really appreciated. 
oh, I just love the Florkins. I love everything about it. Like the there's so much canine propaganda in pop Like <laughs> there's so much. Oh, like but look at the dog. It's a dog. 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 I don't know why I went to New Jersey with the, but I were. I'm just kind of exhausted by it. Um, I also, as of the time recording, had to check on my mom's dogs, and one of them bit me in the stomach yesterday. So I'm like, yeah, I don't like dogs. Um, <laughs> so seeing like cats kind of get some of that screen time was really really cool, especially when you're not really a cat you're an alien and i i still say like the the escape sequence the escape plan sequence was was just peak comic book movie unapologetically comic book movie and it was it was just great it was perfect um you and i also talked about like goose cleaning himself as a cat does as i'm sitting here with my cat next to me cleaning himself like yeah so uh, I think I thought that I thought it was perfect, and um, it's really interesting too because Brie Larson is incredibly allergic to cats, and so they had to go like CGI with with Goose in the first film. I know I'm not sure how they got around it this time around, but kudos. Yeah, yeah, the Florkins were 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 great, um, great comic relief. Um, I wish that. Um... You know, like I, I always find that really good comic relief is a is a running joke that goes through the movie and then turns a little serious at the end. And I think they tried to do that with the whole act of Flurkins, you know, or save everybody on on the station because they can swallow all these people up and then regurgitate them. But even that scene came across as incredibly humorous. And so it, it, there's never that moment where the, the joke kind of turns serious, which I think would have been fun. I, th- I think I'm going to talk a lot about this kind of thing in, in my dislikes. So I don't want to harp on it. But I will agree that the presence of the Flurkins was extremely positive for this movie. All right, Dave, uh, something as we head into the dislikes, uh, something that we agreed upon, um, although what you have in parentheses I think is a little too harsh. Um, I'm not. I'm not equaling the two. Okay, let me. Okay, let me, thank, let me okay, be very good, clear. Good. That. I, I was. Yeah, I was I'm concerned. Not, I'm saying it's a similar issue, but it's a. It's also a matter of scale. I think. Um, I think to me, one of the big problems when we talked about um, Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantumania is that it didn't feel always like it wanted to deal with the emotional fallout of some of the things that happened. I was, I was particularly disappointed looking back at that, at that review that we did with how little they spent dealing with the emotional fallout of the blip and the fact that Ant-Man was gone for a huge chunk of his daughter's upbringing. Um, and, and they never really deal with that. You know, they, they never lean into that strong enough. It's hinted at, and then glossed over, and then everybody just kind of moves on. And I think that some of that is happening in this movie too. I think that the emotional stakes never went big enough. Um, and I wish that they would have really leaned into that. And I know this is a two-edged sword. I know this movie is already dealing with with plenty of you know misogyny online being thrown its mm-hmm. way. And I can just imagine if they would would have went bigger with the emotional content, then it would be like, oh look, there's these three emotional women that are trying the to Michael, meet him. And I, the I, Michael, the Michael, the Michael Burnham of it all. Exactly, and I and I understand the hesitance to do that, but I think it's becoming, for whatever the motivation is, it's becoming a pattern across MCU movies 
that they're not really ringing emotionally true anymore. Um, they never push themselves far enough. Uh, for example, when we're dealing with Monica and Carol in this movie, that resentment is so quickly pushed aside and moved on from in, in just a couple of very short scenes. They never have a real blow up, you know, they never really lay into each other. You know, the, the guilt that Carol deals with for not coming back, the, the fact that Monica needed her, you know, that, that the whole blip thing, they never really let that, you know, they never, they were never really throw that relationship in the slow cooker and let it slowly build pressure and then release, you know, it's just like, here's a couple of quick scenes and let's move on from that. You know, we're having fun. And to a certain extent, I understand that. I know that this is a very fun flick, but there is so much ripe dramatic potential here. And I think one of the great pushes and pulls of earlier MCU entries was that they were able to be both dramatic and humorous. And I think maybe the scales are tipping a little too far into the humorous sometimes because it, it's becoming now a thing where it doesn't feel emotionally always honest. Um, there is a moment in the movie where where Carol sort of snaps at Kamala early on. And then like five minutes later in the movie, she says, hey, sorry for snapping at you. And it's just, they move on. And that's it, right? And I think that there is a real missed opportunity in... Kamala and her hero worship being very difficult for Carol to deal with because Carol is carrying this guilt about Hala around with her this whole movie, right? And then maybe, you know, being a little harsh towards her, being, you know, being um, annoyed with the hero worship. And we don't quite understand why until they get to this big reveal about what happened with Hala and that she she blames herself and it's her fault and she doesn't think she's worthy, right? And then that that twists that around and gives us a new perspective on the characters. Um, it also would have behooved a little bit for Kamala to go through a process of dealing with her hero worship a little, you know, like starting in this hero worship mode and slowly coming to the realization that Carol is human and flawed and maybe they won't get along and then meeting in the middle finally at the end, you know? So these, these emotional arcs are all hinted at in the movie, but they're very flat. They're very static. There isn't a, um, a, a slow build to a grand crescendo in these relationships, Right. And that's kind of, you know, it, it, that that is one of the pr- main problems to me of the movie, uh, especially when you have three leads that are so good with each other and have such great chemistry, you know, really giving them a few dramatic scenes where they really are bumping heads to to chew on and then coming out of that conflict, the other end stronger and more bound together. That's the kind of stuff that I'm here for. Um, so is it as extreme as quantum mania in, in missing the, the mark when it comes to the emotional content? No, I don't think so. And I think that the creators of this movie were aware of the dramatic potential and hint at it throughout, but it feels very truncated in those areas. Um, and that's, I'll talk a little bit more about some other missed opportunities, but I think to me, that is the overall tale of this movie is that it's good and it's fun and that's wonderful. But I think it could have been great. Like, I think there's so much more that was left on the table, particularly in the relationship between these three women that that could have, you know, it could, they could have had a little bit more meat on the bones of this movie, I think, Chris. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and color outside the lines here and kind of merge my first dislike because it's it's very similar uh, it's very tangential uh and that's the fact that it's very rushed in fact i saw a fan theory um where that this film is told from kamala's perspective and that makes sense 
like because we skirt past all the heavy stuff and we talk about the good stuff and the hero worshipy stuff and like hey look at this awesome stuff um but i think and when i say it's rushed and when i say the emotion uh, when i agree with you that the emotions need to be bigger and there needs to be room to breathe in some of those scenes and some of that stuff needs to play out some of this may be happening off screen um i think monica in particular is asked to forgive a whole hell of a lot in a very short amount of time she has this person who is almost like a parental guardian type figure um and this was kind of the inherent problem with making her a child in the first captain marvel movie and now that that you know that problem has come home to roost um where she's a grown woman greeted after 30 years we're saying 30 years of abandonment by carol with a childhood nickname like just hey it's been a week or two since i've seen you no it's been 30 years and you can have all the good intentions of the world of saving all parts of the galaxy, but it cannot be at the cost of your loved ones. Or at the very least, if it is at the cost of your loved ones, then you need to do a lot of you know, heavy lifting to repair that relationship. And I don't think that happened here. I don't think enough of that happened here. Um, I, I agree with all you on all, all the other points. It just felt like Maria can, or excuse me, Monica and Maria, but Monica cont- continues to get shortchanged um, in these, in these scenarios. Um, I don't even want to go off on a tangent on the WandaVision of it all, of how she was treated, mistreated. Um, so yeah, it, it felt very rushed and it felt um, very, it's funny because when you were laying it out of like how it could have played out, Tony Stark was allowed that moment in Captain America Civil War. He was allowed that emotional heft when he finds out that Bucky Barnes was the person that killed his parents. He was allowed that levity. He was allowed that time to be righteous anger if you will to to experience righteous anger if you will but now we have a film with a female director with three female leads two of which are women of color and they are not allowed that levity and that's a problem and maybe if we rope quantum media in with this yes i'll even allow if we want to rope thor love and thunder into this it seems if we're putting point a to b to c that post infinity war and endgame feige whoever you want to say is hesitant to put audiences through that amount of emotional bereavement if you will like with what we had with the snap and all of that stuff they're not as committal to break the hearts of our audiences um the one exception is wakanda forever (laughs) um which read into that what you will i think the real world forced that onto them you know Mm -hmm. I, i think the mcu has found itself in a place where they want to 
just make light-hearted popcorn flicks. Mm -hmm. And that is fine to a certain extent, but that doesn't mean that that those movies don't deserve a strong emotional through line. You can make a fun popcorn flick that has a strong emotional through line. Um, And I'm not, to your point, you're right. The movie was too short, right? But I'm not saying we need like a three hour epic here or something. I think if you add 10 to 15 minutes, minutes, 10 to 15 minutes to, to spend a little bit more time with the emotional arc of the movie, I think you come out of this with a much, much stronger flick. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about, about some other missed opportunities later with my last dislike. But I think I think the, the, the runtime is part of the problem here. I think they just everything is a little truncated and the emotional arcs are one of the things that got shortchanged here. Speaking of being shortchanged, I think we're going to probably tie in our second dislikes again here. But go off, Dave. So... I'm going to tell you right now, I cannot recall for the life of me the name of the villain of this movie. I know can her you? real name, Zoe Ashton, but unfortunately, but that's you? mostly because she's married to Tom Hiddleston. But I'm asking sincerely, do you, after watching the movie, remember the name Dar- of the, the main antagonist? I'm pretty, good, I'm, pretty good, I'm pretty good with names. I think it's Darben. Let me Google it real quick. Now, see, that's what I'm saying, though. I, I am okay with names. Um, not, yeah, not maybe oh, like... Yeah, <laughs> not maybe as good as, as Chris here, but I'm usually decent with names and I could not remember the name. And that is a problem um, because this villain here had tremendous potential because let's, let's just go ahead and say it. Darbin was right. Carol came to her planet and messed with stuff that she probably should have not messed with the way she did. She thought she was liberating everybody. And instead she pooped the bed and the whole planet ended up, you know, a complete mess. And she had every right to be mad about this, right? And so there is a great, a great hook between the villain and one of the main characters that the main character, Carol, did something wrong, horrible to this woman's entire planet and civilization. And she should try to make it right. But at the same time, this is a villain and she's doing it the wrong way, right? So there is beautiful conflict baked into the base concept. And yet for some reason, the villain is incredibly flat in this movie, right? I'm always looking for these great moments, right? Um, and that's and, not, and it's not because of the performance, because that performance, the performance, no, I'm not complaining. I'm not, compl- I'm not com- no, this is, this is on the page, man. This is the writing wasn't there for this mm-hmm. villain. Right. And maybe this again, because the movie was rushed and the emotional stuff, which was shortchanged, but the core concept of the villain was an emotional anger connection with Carol Danvers. And then they didn't lean into that. Not nearly strong enough to make this a memorable villain and how fast she ended up being dispatched at the end just for the, the the main villain is now suddenly a hole in space that needs to be closed. Like, you know what I'm saying? Um, she, she didn't even really factor then in the grand finale of, of, of the movie. Um, and, and I'm saying it, it's true. Marvel has a villain problem. Like their villains are, are never as memorable as they should be. They, you know, they can pull off a, a Thanos, for example, but, but, for the most part in these like standalone movies more often than not the villains are just very undercooked it's like they don't want to really lean into the villain and and like like thanos had good writing man thanos just had good writing right 
what well, was, was a flawless snow that was intentional because they were building something a lot of yeah. these one-off villains they don't they see them as a means to an end they don't see them as a final end game and that's a problem yeah it is because every every villain should be treated as a significant threat right I mean, at the at the end, they even say like like Kamala's mom says to her, "Hey, you saved the whole world. You saved the universe." And it never felt like it was a universe level threat. You know, the villain just kind of stumbling around with this bangle, punching holes in the reality. You know, like, oops. You know, it's just it never felt like a significant threat. And like you said, the performance was definitely there, but it wasn't on the page. And I think one of the things that the, marvel has to do at some point is take a long look in the mirror and say what are we doing with our villains here you know um you know when you when you reflect a little bit on on the stuff that works over at dc and it's not a lot let's admit it okay the dc movies have been pretty poopy um but when you look at one that works it always circles back around to a really strong memorable villain performance right we're looking at heath ledger's joker for example or uh, if you look at the if you look at the riddler and the penguin and their performances in um the batman um even if you look at it like michael shannon in man of steel like his sod was very very good right so you you hit me with a memorable villain performance and it elevates the project overall and here the performance certainly was was there, but it just did not exist on the page. And an and an actor cannot, you know, pull additional scenes that help make the villain more compelling on the page out of thin air, right? There's only so much an actor can do at that point. And so I think I think the MCU needs to spend a little bit more time letting their villains cook just a little more. Yeah, and that's why I said my second dislike was more Cree buildup was necessary. I mean, you think about how integral Cree Creedom is with Carol Danvers. I mean, it's part of her DNA. <laughs> um, make with that what you will, but like, so more of that buildup was necessary. Um, and it just, it simply wasn't there. Um, and it is a continual problem. Um, all right, let's, let's, let's go with your final dislike um, for uh, the Marvel State. For me, the entire movie, as I've mentioned, is kind of a tale of missed opportunities. Um, and my biggest dislike was just that they didn't let you know the emotions run as hot and as high as they could have in order to make this you know extremely compelling, right? Um, but that is not the only missed opportunity we're dealing with here. As I'm watching the movie, I always think this is where they could go with this, and they didn't. You know, this is where they could go if they fully commit, and and they don't, right? Um, Great example. So they go to this planet where everybody um, communicates in song, right? You got Brie Larson, who's a singer and a good one at that, right? And they do this little tiny dance duet thing, and it's cute and all blah, blah, blah. And then the uh, water gets sucked out, right, from the planet to go to Hala, and that's it. We're just done with this place. We're done with her, you know, marriage of convenience husband. We have no idea what happened to him. We never go back to the planet. We never solve the problem of the water being gone. And one of the things I'm thinking through all this is, imagine, again, if they would lean into the emotion of it. And we could have these people who communicate through song singing this beautiful, sad lamentation as their planet is dying, you know? And you could hit the audience in the fields and immediately 
make the audience feel the stakes of what is happening here and make the villain therefore even feel more dangerous because you are directly confronted with the pain of these characters as their planet is dying around them because the water got sucked out of it you know and so why why not lean into this musical thing if you're if you're introducing it you introduce it and you have a little goofy fun with it but then you're not you're not willing to flip around and make it this uh, this emotional moment as well right uh, the same thing applies to the first planet they go to um, and things go sideways, right? Like we get this moment where Kamala feels bad because they can't save everybody and then, you know, brush it off. We got we got to move on, right? And I think that Kamala being as, as soft-hearted and good as she is would have probably struggled significantly more with that. And then you could circle around towards the end where she maybe gets to actually save some people and feel like that's sort of a, you know, a redemption for her because she failed earlier on, if that makes sense, right? Like there's all these little moments peppered throughout where I'm like, that's really cool. Now, are you going to turn this up to 11? Are you going to push it a little harder, you know? And, And then they don't. And that that thing with the the song planet in particular just really bugged me because that is such a cool idea to play with and then you introduce it for a one off joke and then completely drop the idea drop the concept suddenly the prince is bilingual and can speak and then something happens to the planet and you never deal with the fallout of that you never go back to it you never deal with those characters again i, I man i i think there were so many cool moments in there that could have been great moments and and we just didn't get those. And that just makes me sad for the movie, you know? Yeah. Speaking of missed opportunities, uh, my greatest disappointment with the MCU probably is the scrolls. Because and and I'm I'm just gonna go ahead with, with my third dislike and they're they're kind of malleable. We're we're I think we're of a similar mindset with this film. Um are we gonna do something with them or not? Because I think my favorite thing from the first Captain Marvel movie, um, which overly hated by misogynistic pieces of crap, but I enjoyed it. And my favorite thing about it was reinterpreting the scrolls as refugees. And I thought that was such a fascinating thing. And then we have, I really enjoyed the beginning parts of Secret Invasion. Uh, and then it just doo doo. Just everybody projectile. You remember the beginning of Scary Movie Two, Dave? Yes. Where everybody's do, just vomiting on each other, like that 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 parody of The Exorcist, where everybody's just you vomit on vomit, 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 vomit. That was the final half of Secret Invasion, and you see stuff behind the scenes, and you understand why. But like, so like, are we going to do something with these scrolls or not? And I think it's probably the biggest missed opportunity of the MCU at large is to do something with this really interesting real life analogy. And we don't know what to do with it. Keep fumbling that bag. Um, So yeah, I'm right there with you. Now I'm not going to judge this movie too harshly on that because of, I'm going to be protective of it because number one, because of the characters and all of the bull, the bull crap that it's going to get from the worst elements of fandom and the internet. Uh, Yeah. We're looking at you, Alan Ang, (laughs) but yeah. And Oh man, he, he did some follow-up stuff like defending him and it just made it worse. Um, 
but yeah, so I think it when you love something, I think you critique it and you want to make it better. So yeah, I think I think the scrolls are one of the greatest disappointments I've had with the MCU. Um, and just another kind of symptom of the same of the same kind of medical condition, if you will. It's hilarious to me that Secret Invasion was apparently so unpopular that they just completely ignored in this movie. Like, wasn't the main beef of the scrolls in Secret Invasion that it's been like 20 years and, and Nick Fury didn't actually help them find a new home? And then you started this movie Carol and they're all on their own like, planet. One, like 30 years and not one planet was like, okay, not one. But what cracks me up is at the beginning of this movie, they're all sitting happily on their own planet. And I'm like... Wasn't the beef at the beginning of Secret Invasion yeah. that they didn't have their own planet? What happened? Well, it was like, like it was like a, a refugee camp. Like was was that? But I mean, like, will y'all watch an episode of Star Trek? Like, how many times have we seen that story play out of like people who need a place to live? Like, come on. Yeah, yeah. Is so. Yeah, I agree that the scrolls are interesting. Either interpretation is actually interesting. The what they've done uh, in the comic books has been interesting with them too. What they're doing, what they were doing in Captain Marvel with them was interesting. And then ever since, they just kind of dropped the ball with them. Um, and I think they were. I wish they were building towards something with the scrolls because they're such an interesting concept and and now they're just really just like fumbling them over and over again so now the the status in the mcu is basically that the surviving scrolls are living on earth in uh with with thor and his peeps as as guardians right and that's that's just where they're hanging now well i think i think and and comic book creators are not immune to bad ideas but i think this may be a symptom of the further you get away from the source material and the people who know how to write them well, this might be a like a symptom of that problem. Mm, potentially. Final verdict, Chris. I, I Like I said, I'm not going to be too overly harsh on this. I had a great time. I was happy watching this movie, so I'm going A-. Yeah, well, you know, uh, when it comes down to it, you and I are a little different when it comes to grading. <laughs> um, but I think this was a solid B movie. Um, there were things that I wanted from it that I didn't get, um, but I, but I I'm not going to sit here and say this is a trash movie or it deserves you know fail at the box office or something. I think this is by far better than something like Quantum Mania. It's a big step back in the right direction. The leads are super likable. The chemistry is palpable. Uh, the the concept of the switching powers was really cool. There was a lot of cool action sequences there. I think my griping about this movie is predominantly that it is so such a good movie and I like it so much that I just wanted it to be better in these specific areas so I could say this isn't just a good movie it's a great movie you know and it's good it could have been great it is very good still though so I like it is a great it better deal. is it better than the first one I think it's different enough from the first one to, to say yeah. that that's a very apples to oranges comparison you know um I like them both equally i would say just in different ways if that makes sense yeah i think i give this one a slight nod i think in the infantilization of of monica's as a big monica fan it's really hard for me um now that doesn't shortchange the relationship between carol and maria which is great but um i think that's probably still like the stinger from the first captain marvel movie that 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 i can't quite just get over um 
All right, that wraps up our Byword Big Talk. What did you think of the Marvels? Be sure to hit us up on socials at Nerd by Word across them individually, that Nerd Dave, that Nerd Chris. But when we come back, we are giving you the good stuff. Nerd commendations. We are back for our final segment where we have different things in media that we enjoy and we want you to check them out too. We call them... All right, Dave. So this is the rare case where I make a nerd commendation and then you lap me in said nerd commendation. So go off. So uh, Star Trek Lower Decks Season 4 just wrapped up. And uh, considering we're in the nerd commendation segment of the episode, you can probably guess how I felt about it. Um, Chris uh, nerd commended Lower Decks to me and I just completely have have eaten this show up. I didn't think I was going to love this as much as I do. But my God, do I love Lower Decks. Um, I think what's the best thing about it is that it's not so much a parody as just a humorous look at Star Trek. So it is still Star Trek. It still feels like Star Trek. It has the same texture. It's not, you know, ha-ha, look how stupid Star Trek is but more ha-ha, you know, look at the kind of thing we built and how you can twist it around and actually have a little bit of fun with it. But it still feels real and authentic to uh, what Star Trek is all about. And I think season four, in a lot of ways, sort of represents the best of what um, Lower Decks has to offer. Um, So there's 10 episodes in the season, and there are some real bangers in here. Uh, The first episode is a tribute to Star Trek Voyager, essentially. So if you've seen Star Trek Voyager, this is the episode for you. They have a lot of fun with the absolute bonkers nature of that show compared to some other Star Treks. They even um, basically run sort of a a riff off of the the Tuvix episode, where two characters, Tuvok and Neelix, got merged in the transporter. And Janeway was like, oh, there's a whole new being that was created. I don't care. Throw him in the transporter and kill him because I want to split him back up into two people. And it's like one of the singular most divisive episodes in Star Trek. <laughs> and and they're like, we're not just going to do this with one character. We're going to do it with almost all the characters on the ship. Let's just keep merging them and see what happens, you know. Um, they do a lot of fun in the third episode in the Cradle of Exelon where they lean into like the, the trope in Star Trek of like... Um, evil artificial intelligence um that's a lot of fun uh they have an episode where they deal with betazoids uh that that works incredibly well um episode six is probably the nearest and dearest to my heart it's called uh parth ferengi's heart uh, heart pa- uh, place and it is um it's flawless i just want to say this as they go to the ferengi homeworld ferenginar to try to get them to join the federation and we get some callbacks to some let's say chris favorite characters from star trek deep space nine that was really really cool um (laughs) episode eight stands as probably one of my all-time favorite episodes in all of star trek it's just called caves and all the characters get you guessed it stuck in a cave and recount other times they have been stuck in caves because getting stuck in a cave is a Star Trek mainstay. <laughs> I love when they get beamed down at the start and Mariner's like, caves? Man, caves suck. You know that something bad's going to happen in this cave. <laughs> it's like, yes, every time. Um, there's a really cool through line with Mariner's character as she gets a promotion. 
and she has to start dealing, you know, a little bit with her self-destructive nature, which uh, reaches a crescendo in the two-part finale where they actually bring back a um, a character from Star Trek The Next Generation in a really cool way uh, as a, a villain this time around. Um, and, it, and it leaves in a, in a fascinating place uh, where one of the main characters has to actually leave the ship and return to her people. And, you know, of course, we want to now know uh, heading into season five, how they're going to bring her back. Um, it's just, there's so much good stuff here. Um, the people who make this show love and understand Star Trek, I think is the biggest thing that I need to say here. Like it is not making fun of Star Trek, but more um, a friendly, I guess, ribbing between friends. And that's exactly what it feels like. And it feels very much like this is the kind of stuff that could actually be happening in the background of you know, regular Star Trek that we've watched, you know, like as crazy as Star Trek can get, you know, why not have a computer simulation that looks like the Federation badge go insane and then achieve godhood? Why not? It's what we do. It's Star Trek, right? So Star Trek uh, Lower Decks is a fantastic series. If you've not checked it out, you really, really should. And season four is an absolute home run. Um, You know, in in the wake of the totally awesome crossover that they had with Strange New Worlds, um, I almost wish that we could get more live action of these characters because they're just these these characters are so quintessential Star Trek. It's, it's so so very good, Chris. I it's a perfect show, and I've just been so busy, so caught up with everything that I haven't. I think I started the first two or three episodes of season three, um, and I've, I've just fallen off the wagon. And I need to get back on because I love these characters so much, and I absolutely agree. It's like it's like a. a of friends and family roast like <laughs> of, of star trek like you know the other day you and i went to a bookstore and you asked if i was going to be okay with all that physical media and predictably after 35 minutes in the store i bought nothing because i have all of it digitally so um <laughs> yeah that's that's star trek lower decks like is just like friends who like throw shade at each other who roast each other but it's all in good fun and that's what makes it the best all right, so what do you have for nerd commendation this week, Chris? Oh, well, the ban has been lifted for you know the SAG after strike, and one of the unfortunate casualties, uh, similarly to the Marvels, but that was completely released in the strike and did not get any promotional material, is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles: Mutant Mayhem. Now, I saw this twice in theaters. Uh, I saw it once on like opening day because I had some free time and then my son wanted to go for his birthday um, back in August. So I truly, truly love this film. Um, I, I bought it on digital uh, when it released and then like a week later it was released on Paramount+. Plus. So there are multiple ways that you can watch this. It is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, an incredible vo- uh, voice cast. Uh, what I love about this movie is it's the first time that we've really, truly seen teenage mutant Ninja Turtles be teenagers. Um, there are aspects of it that I was just like, hmm, this is very, very different. But when it comes to this, like my age old thing is it's an alt universe. It's an alternate universe. So um, I'm not going to be like the harshest critic on this because I feel like the best interpretation of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is still the IDW comic book series. So there are elements that, of course, are unique to the comic book series and don't show up in other forms of the Turtles. But that doesn't mean that this is not a standout, wonderful project. 
um, Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg, Jeff Rowe, you know that these people love this property. They love these characters and it absolutely shows up on screen. I think there's some unfair kind of comparison shopping with like into the Spider-Verse across the Spider-Verse films when it comes to like animation styles and stuff like this. I think more what like why do we have to compare them and contrast them like hey like yes they're all great um i think the i think far and away like the real scene stealers here are are the four teenage actors uh micah abby shimon brown jr nicholas Cantu, and brady noon that portray the turtles also shouts to iowa debris who if if you haven't watched the bear yet dave Go freaking watch the bear. Uh, this is, it's not a nerdy thing per se, but it's one of the most you have to watch it shows in pop culture over the past decade. It's one of the best put together things um, and just a masterpiece. So I, I love her and I'll watch anything that she's in and she's great as April in here. There's a really beautiful kind of through line about being an outsider, being weird, even April you know, she's a human teenage girl, but she's like an an outcast, social outcast to begin the film. And she kind of is struggling to find her place in high school. Like, who can't relate to that? So I think it's a it's a really beautiful film. Um, I had I had some so I, I wasn't sure how I felt about the portrayal of Splinter about halfway through the film. And then the kind of thematic through line kind of dropped and came into its full bloom at the end of the film. And it was just a really beautiful kind of message of about accepting other people despite their differences. Um, so yeah, uh, incredible rewatch value. It's hilarious from start to finish. Like I really, really love this film. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, the way you're talking about it, I definitely need to check it out. Uh, it sounds absolutely up my alley, man. All right, that wraps up episode 172 of the Nerd By Word podcast. We hope you enjoyed what you heard. And if you do, like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or nerdbyword.com. And find us on social media at Nerd By Word or individually at That Nerd Dave or at That Nerd Chris. And we'd love to hear your take on the Marvels or anything else that you want to yell at us about in big, bold letters. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy.